Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Now, I don't want to be the person who pulls back the curtain and exposes the Wizard of Oz here. <laughs> we're recording this podcast just minutes after the previous one because, whisper it, Thea and I are both on holiday next week. I'm not on holiday next week. Oh. That's not I true. You, I thought you couldn't do it. No, well, no, but that's not because I'm on holiday. Oh, you just couldn't do it. And Lucy couldn't do it. There was, there was a reason why we're doing it. Because you're on holiday, it's I think. My, yeah, I am on holiday. Yeah. Again. <laughs> Still not going to leave in the country. <laughs> do you feel vastly different how you did an hour ago? <laughs> Dramatically. Yeah. It's been lovely, though. So um, I don't want to ruin the... The magic. The magic. The magic such as it is. But here we are again. The same offer is available as ever for a cheap subscription to the TLS. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. You'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. This week marks the double issue of the TLS, so it is full to the brim with really good stuff. Next week at the TLS is called, rather charmingly, Reading Week because we don't have a paper to put out and presumably, like at university, nobody does any reading. Does everyone call it Reading Week there? Do you call it I don't it think so, no. I have heard it said, though. Yeah, I think it's ironic. Yeah. It must be. It has to be. <laughs> It makes me laugh anyway. <laughs> anyway, on our show this week we have Alan Jenkins, poetry editor of the TLS, to talk about Philip Larkin. Alan has reviewed a book of Larkin's correspondence with his parents, whom he knew as Mop and Pop. What do we learn about this great figure of 20th century verse? Helen MacDonald once won the Bailey Gifford Prize, which I'm judging this year, for her lovely book H is for Hawk, a story about birds and also, of course, life. This week she'll be talking about pigeons and what we can learn about and from them. And have you heard of the internet artist Cold War Steve? Don't panic if you haven't. Norma Clark is here to tell you about him and ponder his connection with 18th century satirists. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. These may not be Philip Larkin's best lines, but they are some of his best known for the simple universal truth they contain. But the poet's relationship with his parents and with the fraught matter of home 
was rarely simple. Even as the first line suggests a violent rejection, the second seems to offer a delicate rapprochement and almost forgiveness. They may not mean to. Of the more than 4,000 letters and postcards written by Larkin to his parents, particularly to his mother Ava, who lived into her 90s, a selection has now been made and published as Letters Home, edited by the poet's former friend and colleague James Booth. Our poetry editor, Alan Jenkins, has reviewed the collection, admirably without quoting the lines I began with, and he joins us in the studio to tell us more now. Hello, Alan. Hello. Before we get on to whatever new insight this particular collection brings, what do we know about Larkin's home life and his parents? We know two sort of very contrasting things, really, I think. One, we know that it was a relatively respectable, sort of outwardly ordinary English middle-class pre-war household that he grew up in, in Coventry. His father was city treasurer of Coventry and was very highly respected and efficient and successful at his work. They were very comfortably off. They had a sort of rather large, gloomy-looking house in Coventry with servants, a maid and so on, a daily help for Eva, Sydney's wife and uh, Philip's mother. And to all intents and purposes, from the outside, it looked relatively like a sort of normal middle-class household. And Larkin always wanted people to think that, I think. Or He only ever referred to his childhood as something he called a forgotten boredom, or he talks about Coventry as where his childhood was unspent. In other words, he wanted you to think it was just sort of flat and dull and there was nothing really significant about it. But on the other hand, we, we also know that he had this very, very painful and awkward stammer. He stammered very badly as a little boy, as a young boy, and right into his 30s and even 40s he had this stammer. An autobiographical text that he wrote in the 50s, when he had actually got obviously quite some time away from home in a sense, by that time he looked back very savagely at the home and was very, very cruel about his parents in a way. Was he blaming them for for a sort of emotional distance? Yes, emotional distance would be one way of putting it. What we know from reading his letters, for example, and from the now two or three, at least two biographies that have been written about him, is the emotional weather of the house was pretty bleak. And Sidney Larkin, his father, though I say it's very sort of efficient professionally, was also a bit of a tyrant. He was intellectually pretty progressive and pretty disciplined and rigorous when he was a very decisive and rather kind of overbearing man domestically and he clearly bullied everybody I mean Larkin and his sister Catherine Kitty he always called her were pretty terrified of of their father one senses and Eva certainly was Eva his wife was very much under his rule the sort of rule of the household was Sydney's and Eva was a very timid nervous sort of frightened person the, the trouble was I think Larkin said later was that they were both rather timid rather shy and very repressed people and if one of them had been different they might have been able to do more for the other one but then being both as they were they sort of brought out the worst in each other and I don't know that Larkin blamed them exactly. Certainly, whatever the house really was like, whatever the household was really like, it convinced him that he never wanted anything more to do with domesticity, with a household of his own, with marriage. He just wasn't going to go near any of those things. He was absolutely determined to stay free of them. I mean, these letters cover a period of some 40 years, and Sidney died when Philip Larkin was in his mid-20s, 25, 26. Do we have a sense of how his relationship with his father evolved after he left the family home? Well, clearly, and you get that from the very earliest letters in this book, in the letters home, once he's away from home and he's gone to Oxford, 
He's an undergraduate in Oxford. He writes in a very kind of cheerful, chatty... He was clearly a very bright student and a very clever schoolboy and very kind of consciously playing the part of the provincial outsider. And he writes in a way that you know he thinks his parents will enjoy. He's pleasing his parents. He's sort of parent-pleasing and and doing the thing that a well-brought-up, nice, polite young man would do in that era. And there's a change of tone at that time... And he does seem to be, as it were, very close to them and very concerned about them. Obviously, the the country was at war. Coventry was incredibly badly bombed. It had suffered very heavily in the Blitz. And there was an occasion when Larkin actually, he didn't hear from his parents. There was no letter came through. He was used to getting letters back from them on a very regular basis and no letter came. And he was terrified. He thought the house had been bombed. He thought they might have been killed or certainly hurt. And he makes the trip back to Coventry with a a school friend who was also at St John's Oxford with him and they both had parents in Coventry and they were both obviously deeply anxious and they went back to check up. As it turned out, everything was all right. Sydney had, the house had been damaged. Sydney had sent Eva away to Litchfield where there were relatives. This event gave Larkin a very exciting and, and rather sort of dark and tense episode in his first novel, Jill. But at the time, it's clear that he's very relieved. So there's this closeness there. There's a real attachment and closeness. And at the same time, working away in his unconscious was this absolute horror of what the household had been like or what their relationship had been like. Did Sydney ever get to see Larkin succeed? Because presumably wanting to succeed in the eyes of his dad was an important thing for Larkin. Yes, I think so, very much so. And Sydney saw the publication of Larkin's two novels in 45 and 47, and also the publication of his first book of poems, also in 45. Would we be able to tell there was greatness ahead of him, do you think? <laughs> I don't know whether Sidney could have told that. I mean, he had been a very very encouraging father. He clearly, he loved literature, Sidney. He was a great reader. You know, the Edwardian standbys, the Victorian standbys like Samuel Butler and Dickens and so on. And George Bernard Shaw was a favourite in the household. But he also encouraged Larkin to read Lawrence. I mean, they both loved Lawrence and this was something they very much shared. And this was a progressive taste at the time. You know, not everyone was reading Lawrence. There's a very funny letter in the letters home where Larkin tells his father that an unexpurgated copy of Lady Chatterley has been found in a student's room behind the bookcase and he can't wait to get his hands on it. There's a sort of queue of undergraduates all waiting to read it. And Sidney, again, in this rather sort of surprisingly sort of slightly progressive way, wrote back to him and said, you know, you, you, you need to be a bit careful with the unexpurgated Lawrence. You know, <laughs> so he's sort of some, there may be some terrible revolution in his feelings or something. It's a very touching exchange. And I think Sidney obviously was extremely proud of seeing his son getting his work published. He didn't say anything at all that I can recall about the first novel, Jill. Oh, no, he does. Sorry. He says... I can just about believe in all the things that happen, but uh, uh, <laughs> overall, the attitude is, is a little gloomy, is a little too sort of anti-life. You know, you, you usually find that life is interspersed with a few more cheerful episodes, this kind of thing. It's almost as if he's encouraging his son not to be so sort of dark about everything. They did take enormous pride in the publication of Larkin's second novel, A Girl in Winter, which got a lot more attention than Jill. Jill wasn't reviewed very much, and certainly no one was particularly excited about it. But A Girl in Winter did garner some very, very favourable reviews, and one actually in the Sunday Times, that moved them to tears. You know, the parents wrote to Larkin saying, we were reading 
the review of your novel in the Sunday Times, and we were both very deeply moved. Eva wrote this saying, I was reading it out to your father and I couldn't go on reading it. I was so moved. So they were clearly very excited to see him making a mark. But I don't recall any sense that they knew what was coming. For one thing, Larkin's poems at the time seemed much less significant in a way. There were a lot of his contemporaries and a lot of people, a lot of undergraduates at Oxford were writing and publishing poems. And the f- poems in his first book, the, uh, the North Ship, were not really tremendously, obviously superior to a lot of yeah. young person, young man's undergraduate he kind of poems. He was almost as a novelist at that point. He wanted to be a novelist. He thought he would be a novelist. He was much more interested in writing novels, or much more, in a sense, ambitious for his novels. I think he thought of poetry almost, at least... That was how he wanted it to seem, and you can never tell that really it may have been the thing that he really cared most deeply about. He was less willing to show, but he certainly seemed to be more ambitious for his his prose fiction. In a way, you, you could see why at that time, because the North Ship wasn't really anything terribly remarkable. It was written under the spell of Yeats, or Yeats's music, as Larkin put it. He was sort of completely just ravished by Yeats's music and wrote these poems that sound a little bit like Yeats, but they don't really have Yeats's power. They're a little bit flimsy, to be honest. So there wasn't really much sign of the poet that he was going to be, and that came a bit later after he had really kind of exchanged Yeats as a model for Hardy. He, He was just completely overwhelmed by Hardy, and there was this sense that Ah, now I can see how I could do this. Now I could see how I might be a proper and a serious poet. You know, I can learn from Hardy in a way that he hadn't learnt anything from Yeats, really. And was it his father who pointed him to Hardy, or did he come across Mm. him as an undergraduate through the normal? Actually, he came across Hardy when he was doing his first job as a public librarian in Wellington, Shropshire. He had new digs. And the digs were faced east and the sun used to wake him up in the morning. So instead of trying to get back to sleep, he would turn to this little volume of Hardy by the bed and just read read Hardy's poetry first thing in the morning when he woke up in the early hours. But it clearly had an absolutely profound effect on him. If Larkin could connect with his father on this intellectual, cultural yeah, level, yeah. Th- was there more of an emotional connection with his mother from that's, the beginning? That's how it would seem. I mean, Larkin clearly admired his father and I think to an extent sort of loved him. Um, in a filial sense, but he was scared of him. With Eva, there was a a very different attachment. I mean, a boy's attachment to his mother is always very different. You don't need me to tell you from a boy's attachment to his father. There was a closeness there. There was some sort of bond that there clearly wasn't with Sydney, in a sense that Larkin seems to have found her a much more both comforting but also intensely irritating presence you know uh, you know he was really driven mad by her she was a, a rather dithery kind of anxious person and unfortunately after Sydney died she was very much a woman of her class and generation and she really had no kind of abilities no resources she read too she was you know interested and curious about different kinds of activity and Loughborough, Leicester, where she was living at the time, then Loughborough. She tried to sort of get her life together. I didn't realise that's where I'm from. She's very much... She's 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 a Loughborough woman. Well, they were Coventry and then they moved moved to... Larkin actually moved in with her. I mean, he moved her to... Yeah, in Leicester. He got this job as his first job at a university library was in Leicester. That's right, And Sydney had died and Eva was in a kind of state and Larkin was thinking, you know, I need to look after her. He really took responsibility for her. He kind of took her on in a way and and his way of taking her on then was to 
get a house and be her lodger. I mean, he set her up in a house and they lived together for two years. But I mean, clearly, after two years, he'd had enough of that. And he yeah. got as far away as he could, which was to Belfast as a university and library. what did she make of the... So she was alive for a big chunk of his career. She lived really almost his entire adult yeah, life. She died, died eight in, years after... She after died in 77 and he died eight years later, yeah. So what would she make of what became the... Larkin canon, which is probably more confessional poetry that might impact more on his relationship with her, at least implicitly, was the awkwardness. He's writing some of these poems that have a nod to family life. He didn't write any very directly about her. I mean, by the time he wrote, I believe, certainly by the time he published High Windows, where the unfortunate They Fuck You Up Your Mum and Dad was published, she was in the kind of later stages of dementia and decline, and she wouldn't have been aware of anything, I think, much that he was doing by then. Certainly there, there are a couple of... He wrote a rather touching, I think, and rather beautiful short poem about her fear of thunderstorms among the many things that she was terrified of she hated summer because she was terrified of thunderstorms and it was and he wrote this rather moving poem about her fear of thunderstorms and his rather different kind of suspicions about summer because it all seemed too rich and bold and beautiful and it promised too much happiness and that wasn't for him he says you know and he says he, 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 he wasn't a summery chap he, I think it's fair. he was a, he was summer loving he says and, yeah. and, and i summer loving you know love summer but I can't really give myself to it. He couldn't give himself to these feelings of joy and happiness in summer. He was always thinking that something bad, you know, was just around the corner. So he's he the last line, an autumn more appropriate. You know, the sort of chill of autumn is more appropriate actually to him. And of course, there was the beautiful reference back, which actually quotes Eva's sort of direct speech as he's the scene is set on a home. He's visiting her at home and listening to jazz records in his room. I mean, that sort of tells you something in a way straight away. The first thing he wants to do is get away and listen to his records in his room, you know, visiting mum. Teenager-like. Teenager-like, <laughs> uh, well into his 30s by now. And she calls up the stairs, you know. Uh, that was a pretty one I heard you call from the unsatisfactory hall to the unsatisfactory room where I played record after record. And so it goes on. And he wrote to her a letter after this poem was, I think, uh, certainly after it was published, it was going to be broadcast. And he wrote to warn her that, you know, you might want to hear me reading this poem on... But, he said, I didn't mean my room was unsatisfactory, really. <laughs> what I, I meant that it was unsatisfactory because it's not my permanent room, because I'm not always there. So it was, And he'd also written the poem by then, The Poetry of Departures, you know, We All Hate Home and Having to Be There. Yeah. And he wrote to her about that and said, I didn't mean I hated your home, I meant my room in Belfast was yeah. what I was writing about there. So, yeah, there was a little bit of uneasiness. And clearly he protected her, in a way, from whole areas of himself. I mean, when he wrote his letters to her, he was being a very caring, dutiful, loving son. But she never was allowed to see the kind of sophisticated comedian that he turned on for his friends like Kingsley Amos and Robert Conquest and others and Judy Edgerton, a friend from Belfast and so on. So, I mean, he was a different person to different people in his letters, as we all are. On that note, Alan, how much more is there to come of about Larkin? Because... You say there's been two pretty exhaustive biographies. There's been a couple of big sets of letters, of which this is now one. The third, actually, this the, one. Yeah. yeah. There, were, there were his letters to friends, the selected letters was the first one. There were letters to Monica, his lifetime companion, really, his long-term companion. Rival uh, to that, Eva. Rival to <laughs> Eva, absolutely. <laughs> a rival to Eva, who's really lost to Eva. I mean, Larkin's love for his mother, or obligation to his mother, his duty to his mother... He sort of used as a little bit of an excuse, in a way, I think, sometimes, you know, to not yeah. commit himself more than he 
wanted to or had to Monica. He really just desperately needed to be free and wanted to be free to write his poems and to live in his imagination, as he said to her. I live in my imagination, and she knew that already. But there is another volume due, or at least there is a whole other correspondence to be yet to be published with his Oxford friend Bruce Montgomery, who was the complete antitype, the complete opposite of Larkin. He was a very sophisticated debonair, even when they were at Oxford, and he liked sort of very... He liked classical music and all kinds of music that Larkin was curious about, but felt sort of not quite right for him. He became a crime novelist, quite successful crime mm. novelist, as Edmund Crispin was his nom de plume, and wrote novels under the name Edmund Crispin. Composed music for films and, I think, later on for TV as well. So he lived well. He had expensive tastes and indulged them in a way that Larkin found sort of both glamorous and, I think, a bit terrifying too. Mm. Sort of, there's a very funny letter to his mother just describing a visit to Paris that he was persuaded to go to with Bruce Montgomery. The pair of them went off to Paris to go to jazz clubs and sort of live it up in Paris. It's a priceless letter about how, you know, Larkin didn't ever sort of imagine he could have quite such an exciting time in a foreign place, you know. Obviously never went to sleep. I can't imagine him eating an oyster, for example. No, I don't think he ever ate an oyster. No, no, no. Probably never ate a peach. So what? And these letters, why are they... There's an embargo on them. Well, certainly another 20 years at least. I mean, it'll be a while. Ah... I suspect because it's probably a very frank correspondence. As I say, Bruce Montgomery was one of Larkin's more sophisticated friends, and I suspect there was quite a lot of stuff between them that, while people are still alive, they might want to be protected from. Really? I imagine. I'm, I'm and guessing the, otherwise... Well, the biographers well, have seen these correspondence. No, no. I mean, the embargo. So is there could. An so, embargo, oh, right? so there could yeah, be some. Because yeah. the problem Larkin suffered. The problems Larkin suffered is when Moshe, Andrew Motion wrote the biography. Yeah. Yeah. He pulled out all sorts of stuff that people had either put to one side or passed over to create this view of Larkin that challenged a certain amount of a sense of his decency. And Martin Amis got very exercised about it, yeah. and there was there was this whole spat yeah. about it, wasn't there? Yeah, no, quite. So there, um, could be, there could be more... There uh, could be more, but I doubt really whether there's anything very incriminating, actually. I mean, I suspect it'll just be things that people, as I say, while they're alive, while there are living relatives or people who might have been, you know, had relatives concerned at the time. But would you be excited to read it? Would this be a big... I, I'd want to read it, yeah, because Bruce Montgomery was a very different kind of friend from Larkin's other friends. He was a much... He's kind of because of debonair, rather an old cowardish character, yeah. is the way he comes across in some of the ways that Larkin describes him to his mother and, and, and others. But I mean, as I said, Larkin did have very frank exchanges with a lot of other of his male friends. He kept it for his male friends. He didn't show that side to his mother. She was a more innocent kind yeah, of gentle soul. Such an inter- I mean, it's such an interesting writer, and um, we could talk about it forever. But we better stop there. Alan, thank you so much for talking thank to you. us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Consider the pigeon. We live among many of them and revile them, perhaps, as sort of winged rodents. It would be hard to write a literary book about them, wouldn't it? Well, no, according to John Day, who's written Homing on Pigeons, Dwellings and Why We Return. According to Helen MacDonald, it doesn't just talk about pigeons, pigeon history and science, though it does so beautifully, but ranges from Freud to Donna Haraway to Rachel Whitehead and Martin Heidegger and tackles themes of childhood and exile, of fatherhood, history, community, geography and the contested nature of home. Helen is, of course, a world expert of finding deeper meaning in connection between birds and human experience, thanks to her peerless memoir, H's for Hawk. So she is well-placed to judge this book. And she joins Thea and me on the line to talk about it with a parrot in her car. Helen, hello. <laughs> hello. Yes, I have got a small parrot in the backseat of my only, car. Only it's extremely one. on brand. Yes, only exactly. Yeah. He, may, he may chatter along with us. We did insist on that. But let's move from parrots to pigeons. You exactly. tell a great story in this lovely essay of a publisher's reader suggesting to Darwin that he might remove everything in On the Origin of Species except for the bits about pigeons because everybody is interested in pigeons. He's the man from Decker who turned down the Beatles, isn't he, basically? <laughs> I mean, it's such an adorable story. Is it true, though, Helen? Are people interested in pigeons? And why should we be interested in pigeons? Oh, we should all be interested in pigeons. I mean, partly because they're the sort of strange, dusty familiars of our city life, and it's just really lovely to know more about them. But they're just fantastically interesting. So, you know, all the pigeons that humans have dealt with are all descended from these very peculiarly neat looking blue and black and white birds that live on northern cliffs the town pigeons are and all the, we've basically bred them over thousands of years into these bizarre shapes and forms and i say in my piece this dear to my heart that we should think of pigeons as cultural artifacts just as much as any kind of architecture or you know ming vases we've made them as they are and they're the familiars of our, of our human species, really. Can you talk us through a few of the ways in which we've genetically manipulated them? Some of them are quite astounding. <laughs> we've made giant pigeons. There are these wonderful things called mondanes, which are a little bit like chickens. They, they can hardly fly. We've bred these birds called powder pigeons, which are a, a sort of huge crop. In fact, they can hardly see over it. It looks like they've swallowed a football and they sort of wander around on their tiptoes. We have birds with frilled feathers, with too many tail feathers, so they can't close their tails. We have birds that have genetic malfunctions of their inner ear, so that when they fly, they tumble down. They have these strange little fits. We really basically have done whatever we can cool. to, to make them weird. Yeah, and in fact, it's very odd, actually, when they started with these pigeons. You know, I think in the 19th century, they bred some that were so badly affected that they actually tumbled along the ground, and they used to hold races oh, in which they would... They'd crouch down and hold these birds and then they sort of let them go and they'd see how far they rolled. I mean, it really is 
totally surreal. Do you think people do revile them a little bit now, the pigeons that are kind of... If you live in a city, I get the feeling that pigeons are peculiarly unloved birds now. They really are. I mean, people think of them as rats with wings, don't they? And pigeons in cities are often in quite a bad state, you know. They tend to get bits of litter trapped around their toes, and then they, there's nothing quite as grim as trying to eat a sandwich in a, in a station and seeing a footless pigeon stumping past you. I mean, they, <laughs> I can kind of see where, you know, where that comes from. But one of the things I love about those pigeons is that they really are just everywhere. And there's a, a wonderful nest very near me in my, in my local town where someone's put up a lot of pigeon spikes to stop them nesting and sitting on a particular building. And they've carefully built a nest into the spikes. And I think there's a lovely metaphor there. It's, it's just nice to think of these birds. It's hard not to see them as a, an analogue to you know, marginal communities and people who are unloved and, and not looked after. And I think the pigeons, you know, they bounce back. They're not cared for, but they keep going and they're always there. And it's good that they are. This book by John Day will get to, which is about racing pigeons, which are yeah. a thing. You've been to a racing pigeon meeting yourself. Yeah, it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I think it was at a carp farm in the middle of Leicestershire or Rutlandshire in the middle of winter in this porter cabin running with condensation and it had a gas heater going off, you know, one of those old gas fires that hisses. And these men, I mean, these men were amazing. They were all very serious. And I sat at the back, utterly silent. I had nothing to say that was of any interest to them whatsoever. And they talked about pigeons with that wonderfully eccentric, utter focus of the enthusiast. I kind of left and thought, well, that was fascinating. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> and then <laughs> some years them. later, you found yourself reviewing a book about pigeons for us. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was kind of moving. You know, I think one of the things that John Day's book captures, which I really did feel at this you know, strange meeting, was that when you're breeding these racing pigeons, you know, there's a sort of sense that you're creating your own loft, you're creating your line of pigeons. They're taken you know, hundreds of miles away and set free, and then they come back. And every time they fly, you feel there's a part of that person that has bred them, there's part of that pigeon fancy that flies with them. They're a kind of imaginative escape, often from quite rough circumstances. And I just think that's beautiful. It's really a wonderful example of how we use nature to to help us, really, in emotional ways as well as practical ways. Why is it such a male domain, do you think? It's a very strange thing. It really is. <laughs> men are fanatics, though, aren't they? I think men, the, <laughs> men, men are weird about stuff. It's, it's, it's very much one of the sort of on a par with train spotting. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. Um, men it, play it, computer games more than women, I think, don't they? they? I don't think that's they true. Do. I mean, is it not? It, is it not true? No, I mean, the video games true. isn't true anymore. Oh, no, that's true. not true. I think you could think of it as kind of like a 19th century version of gaming. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's quite competitive. There's a lot of in-out group talk and, you know, there's a lot of money involved. I mean, that's one thing that's always astonished me. I know a man in my local town of Newmarket, Len, he enters pigeons into this thing called the Million Dollar Pigeon Race in South Africa. I mean, there's money. There's money to be made in pigeons. There's money in um, them, their pigeons. Yeah. Uh, why is this such a good book, Alex? One of the things that comes across from your piece is you call it a rich and joyous book. He tells stories of pigeons, but what does he tell about himself? He connects all sorts of issues about himself with this, doesn't he? He does. It's so wonderfully various. And when I first started reading the book, I started to feel a little bit like I wasn't sure about this. He jumps from example to example, and they're so far flung. As I say, they're from, we have philosophers, we have artists, it goes from here to there to here, and pigeons are the thread tying it together. But the more I read, the more I realized that there's a sustained look at the ways in which we think of home. 
that really glows in the book. And he, he picks up these examples a bit like a pigeon picking up bits of corn. You know, every single one is necessary for this book to work. And at the end of it, I felt really moved by what he'd done. It's one of those very rare stories that really meshes together the natural world and personal memoir and philosophy and cultural history. It's a smorgasbord of joy. It really is. Do you think he pitched it as ages for hawk but for pigeons? <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to answer that, Helen. I'm just, no I'm, I'm just, well, I'm just wondering. I, I suspect someone in the publishing business has <laughs> used that, that has used that phrase at some point, but I won't, I won't make you answer uh, that. Is it we identify with animals in a way? Is that always a healthy thing to do? Do you think we project onto animals things which we might better try and deal with ourselves? So it's easy for us to maybe see pigeons as representative of home than rather than have a good home life ourselves. Yes, John Day's doing this very explicitly in the book. You know, he talks about how his compulsion to his need to keep pigeons in his new house as a way of forging a link with a place. He wants to make the place feel home and pigeons will work that for him. I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I do feel that we all use animals to reflect ourselves, to reflect our own needs and desires. We use them as proxies all the time. And one of the things I love is that if you get to understand what those animals are doing for you in a psychological or a, or a social sense, you can somehow sometimes look past that and see the real animal themselves. And animals, are, if you hang out with them, they're really alien creatures. I mean, pigeons, they navigate in astonishing ways. They can smell the wind. They feed their young on crop milk, which is this weird fluid that they generate from parts of it. I mean, it, they're really odd. They're not like us. And yet, you know, we have this close relationship. Do you think we, maybe it doesn't speak well of us if we don't take that next step and see them for the, the things in themselves? Because if we always say pigeons are a bit like people because they like to go home, we're making them like us, but we have to take the extra step to respect them as a, a living thing in, in and of itself. I think we do. And I think one thing that pigeons do in this book that's really, really beautiful and I think very important, particularly at this political moment, is they help John Day to think very critically and carefully about what the nature of home is. So pigeons for him are teachable creatures. They're teaching him about, you know, the pitfalls of thinking of home as this singular place that, that you're tied to by this notion of kind of ancestry and how it isn't like that at all. Like everything, there are different ways of encountering issues and problems but I'm hopeful that animals can be useful to us in that sense. It's interesting um, the book points out that while numbers of pigeon men are dwindling in Britain there's been a, an uptick in, in it amongst immigrant communities in Britain. Yes and this is actually something of a sort of an old pigeon guy. I mean most pigeon guys tend to be quite old <laughs> and they tend to be fairly working class and they tend to be quite despairing about what's happening to pigeon racing. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Britain's going to the dogs, you know, so it's pigeon racing. <laughs> but this notion that immigrants are coming in and they're bringing their pigeons, and for example, there's a, an enormous number of pigeon uh, fanciers, I guess is the right word, who come from Pakistan and Pakistan background, Pakistan heritage, who fly these long-wing pigeons that are very popular in Pakistan. Mm. It's not quite pigeon racing, but it's the same in the sense that the pigeon is the obsession. It's a bit like falconry in the sense that you do have these really generous and kind of quietly almost loving sociability that grow up around pigeon people so it's it's really lovely to think of these new links being forged it's between kind of the multiculturalism because i mean the, yeah. the cynic would say that this type of hobby will attract people who are nostalgic 
who regard uh, their sense of home as being something very in the British tradition. You know, I hate to bring up the B word, but the sort of the spectre of Brexit would be within that community. But what you're saying and what John Day seems to be saying is that there's a kind of beneficent multiculturalism within the culture as well. I think increasingly so. The shapes of traditional pigeon racing may be changing. And there are many, many different ways in which people can interact with tame pigeons. But um, I think John himself has birds in his loft that, that uh, are from Pakistan, long-winged birds, you know, these high-flying birds. There's a lovely story, and I, I think it's somewhere in Los Angeles, there's a group of pigeon keepers who famously are all ex-gang members, and they have all become obsessed with pigeons. And, and I think you can find stuff on YouTube of these, these guys, and they, you know, they're very quietly and gently holding these tiny pigeons and saying, you know, this is my life now, you know. There's definitely a very peculiar narrative of, of redemption caught up in pigeons that I encounter again and again. You know, there's another film, another guy was, I can't remember his name either. I'm honestly, I'm sitting in a car park in with a, a garage in Stowe Market with a parrot. <laughs> but um, there's, there have been experiments at schools for troubled teenagers that involve pigeons as part of the curriculum. Yeah. And there's a sense in which the, there's, if it's an acceptable way to show kinds of gentleness and kindness yeah. and nurturing that, that that somehow don't work against the familiar narrative of what masculinity is, it seems to work really well to involve pigeons in that. So I, I know they're a bit of a panacea, to be honest. It's quite, quite The amazing. panacea of pigeons. Helen, you've exactly. totally... Yeah, you've convinced me. This this whole piece... Because I think I, I look at pigeons askance when I'm stumping around London. I sort of look at them and they're sort of, you know, they're annoying... Helen, you've made the case to me. I think that's... Uh, you, ne- you never know. You never know. You might come home one day with a box of pigeons. Yeah, you know, I, just, that'll I, be it. You yeah, know. That'll be it for my marriage, I can tell you that. Helen McDonald, what a joy speaking to you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Well, next time, next time you see that pigeon that you would look at askance, you might remember that the first one, that its ancestors, the first ones, were, were domesticated by the Sumerians. I might. You might. You might remember that. I'm going to remember that. I find it harder with seagulls because I'm actually petrified Are you? of them. Have you seen I was the... almost attacked by one. Have uh, you seen the news ago. about them? Yeah, no, I've seen that, but that came out after I was almost uh, attacked. One attacked a dog. It carried off a dog. One tried to attack me when I was with Alf, and we had to duck as it turned round and then swooped back again. Well, what did it do? And did it about four times, and we were running down the road trying to get to You were being chased by front. a seagull? <laughs> actually being no, chased by... I was! No, it was petrifying. So it was you, a giant dog, yeah. and you were being chased by a seagull? Yeah, we had to nip seagull. down a covered alley to get away from it. We were obviously very close to its nest, but, I mean... It was on my roof. So I think I don't know who has the right there. Yeah, fair's fair. fair. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, a cheap red and white striped plastic shopping bag from which protrude familiar figures. Theresa May, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nigel Farage and, of course, Boris Johnson clutching a tin of Frey Bentos while Jeremy Corbyn climbs up the outside and Kim Jong-un, Cilla Black, Steve McFadden, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump vie for attention. Beside the bag, a little dog deposits a long white turd. No, you've not been sniffing glue. You're looking at a photo montage of Birmingham artist Christopher Spence, who goes by the name of Cold War Steve. What the hell is going on here? We quite reasonably asked, so we thought we'd get Norma Clark, respected literary critic and expert in the 18th century, to tell us. Norma's written beautifully on the subject of this cultural figure and joins Thea and me now. Norma, hello. Hello. Did you enjoy doing this? I enjoyed it very much. (laughs) I really 
got into it as I was doing it and could have gone on for some time writing about it. Okay, so this guy's big on Twitter and these images that he does, these strange images I've just described, are on Twitter and he's Thames and Hudson have produced a book called Cold War Steve Presents the Festival of Brexit. What is that? What's it like? It's a series of collages. So it's a book of reproductions of the collages that he's made which feature a number of familiar characters, as you just listed some of them, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin. Which are kind of global, international figures. They're global, but it's mostly about Britain. And there's kind of crap British figures that go alongside it. And alongside it, you have British figures from popular culture, from programmes like EastEnders. Phil Mitchell from EastEnders is a key figure who stands in for our author-artist, who is a kind of everyman. Although he doesn't use this phrase, he's like the man on the Clapham omnibus. He's the man who is looking up from below at what all these politicians are doing and the mess that they're making of everything. And his expression, whenever he's in... I think, all of the pictures somewhere. And just to say that one of the charms, one of the pleasures of looking at these pictures is to see where the familiar figure is going to pop up each time. So you're looking at a picture and you might see Theresa May in the foreground and then you're looking to see, well, where is is Putin? Yeah, it's like where's (laughs) Wally. It's the wit with which that person is included, which can often be really quite bland. And somehow the humour is also in the blandness. Is it funny? It's very funny. And he, Christopher Spence, he has a nice brief afterword to this book where he says that his main intention is to be funny and also to be political. So it's that way round. Because they're not beautiful, are they? Because it's kind of quite deliberately naff Photoshop. It's not sort of cunningly interwoven into a scene. It's a picture plonked straight down. And it's rough. And it's meant to be rough. And to me, it was like going through a family photo album in which the pictures are taken by someone who doesn't really know how to take pictures. Um, (laughs) That's my family photo album. Yeah, it's most people's family photo albums, isn't it? And then the same people reappear... And sometimes they're looking at the camera, sometimes they're doing something else. There's a sort of drabness about it that sits on everything. And he captures that. He captures a sort of drabness that is part of the fun. You say it's fun, you say it's funny, but there's a sadness as well, isn't there? I mean, is it is this a kind of an art of hopelessness, of futility, of despair? <laughs> Ooh, um, there's a melancholy to Mm. it, I think. And I've been trying to decide for myself whether I think this is the way that you should be doing political art or not. And what it means for... It's this mixing of high and low. So you've got settings which are working-class settings in which people don't look particularly full of agency. They look sort of quite passive. Into these settings he drops powerful figures, the establishment. So he's making a joke at the expense of the establishment figures but at the same time he's not offering you a sense of hopefulness in those other people and and 
And if we are those people... And if we are those people... Is that partially our fault that we've let there be a world in which Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nigel Farage, just to take the ones in this country, Boris Johnson, who are kind of ridiculous cartoon characters, we've let them become the people who are running our destiny. Exactly. And, and it was for that reason that I slightly disagreed with um, those people who compared these cartoons with the ones produced by Hogarth and Gilray in the 18th century. Which is why we gave you this gig, because we thought, is this this a connection to that 18th century satire? And of course, in many ways it is. In many ways, he's doing what Hogarth did, which is mixing high and low, because, of course, Hogarth is uh, doing his political cartoons like The Harlot's Progress and others, The Rake's Progress, in the heyday of the the mock heroic. So the mock heroic is all about bringing down the great to the level of the low. So he is absolutely doing that. The big difference is that in Hogarth's period in the 1730s, ordinary people had no political power whatsoever. They didn't have the vote. They assumed, you know, the kind of entitlement that the establishment figures had, they were entitled to feel because they were entitled and nobody else had, you know, the power that they had. So it wasn't their fault. There wasn't a kind of sting for them. It wasn't their fault, but anyway, go on. It wasn't the fault of the ordinary people. They hadn't. (laughs) That's right. So whereas we might feel a sting that we may have let this happen because we have representative democracy, we vote these people in and out. Yeah. So that's right. That so, sting isn't there for, for in the 18th century. No, no, that's absolutely right. No one has the vote. No one, and no one imagines that the lower orders are told so relentlessly that they are lower orders that they don't even think in the 1730s that you could have the kind of power that someone like the Prime Minister Robert Walpole has, you know, essentially the first Prime Minister in this country, notoriously corrupt. They're all corrupt. And everyone, all the satirists are objecting to the corruption, but nobody thinks actually you can turf these people out and put people who are not corrupt in because politics is a game of being able to create wealth for yourself as an individual. One of the pieces is a reworking of Bruegel's Hunters in the Snow, which has been renamed Cunts in the Snow, uh, which is funny. Is there an argument that's a bit obvious? Do you think there's a sort of obviousness to that? Maybe obviousness is part of the charm as well. I don't think he would protest at that. I think you know, Christopher Spence would say, yes, they're obvious. There isn't anything subtle about what's going on. So he's not producing an art that is subtle in response to it. But would you have one on your wall? Do I want do I want pictures of Theresa May and Donald a Trump daily reminder. on my wall? No, I don't think I would. And of course, that raises the question in a broader sense of you know, what art is for, doesn't no, it? But this, yeah. but this is legitimate art. Cause some people would look at this. One of the reasons I was really keen for you to do this piece was some people would just dismiss it. This is just Twitter. Internet culture. Yeah, fun, memes. Yeah. It's a meme. I mean, it's yeah. basically memification. Yeah. And it should not be regarded as seriously. But I think you make the case as you've just done and, and, and in the piece, that this is, there's something at work here. This, this, yeah. this does, if it's not the same as Gilray and Hogarth, it's not completely removed from it. I think there is. And I think that he says that his inspiration is Bruegel and Bosch. And if you go and look at those paintings that are his inspiration, and you can see a sort of rather horrified vision of, of the world, and it's a world in which 
people are being done over the whole time in one lurid way or another. So in a sense, I mean, I get that with these pictures, but they're much softer. They're more for smiling wryly at than for going away and feeling you know, the kind of rage that I think we ought to feel yeah. about what's going on now. It's an uneasy laughter, isn't it? It makes you feel uncomfortable because it's not fruitful. And I mean, we've all laughed for long enough. As I've often said, I'm from a country where we've always laughed at our, our Prime Minister Berlusconi for years and years and years. But there's a certain point at which laughter doesn't lead to anything necessarily. Yeah. And, and this book came out, of course, before Boris Johnson was elected mm. prime minister. And reading, leafing through it, the laughter is a sort of self-protection. Mm. And you feel it's all OK because I can laugh about it. And then he becomes the leader of the Conservative Party and our prime minister. And it's not funny Yeah, anymore. it stops being funny. It's, so it's really also kind funny. of here which seems to be a sort of one of the great fears, the post-Brexit fears, is that we will become, if we're not already, a crap country, yeah. a kind of a drab, laughing a laughingstock at one level, but also this kind of naffness that he's embracing as an artist, that this is what Britain is, this is the festival of Brexit, is a celebration, it's a carnival of, of crapness, and that's what the country is going to become if it's not already. Well, and in some ways you can't help thinking, serve us right for having a view of ourselves that was full of superiority. And there, I think, is you know, the sort of hard undertone of all of this, which he's allowing us to both know and be protected from a little bit, I think, is that indeed all the countries that we used to laugh at, you know, Italy, yeah. that's our future, we're going that way. Interesting <laughs> as well that he's doing it by making these comparisons, these parodies of these great works by Bruegel, yes, <laughs> elevating us at the same time. Foreigners. Yeah, it's foreigners. Um, <laughs> this is Tony Blair in his farewell speech. This country is a blessed nation. The British are special. The world knows it. In our innermost thoughts, we know it. This is the greatest nation on earth. And of course, you know, that sense of inherited superiority is what we're going to lose. But what's painful about it as well is the way it resonates with what Trump is doing in America. You know, it's the whole make America great again, you know, make Britain great again. Well, it is a joke. All of that is a joke. And, you know, we're, you know, we're going to suffer from, we're part of from that joke. Well, I'm so glad you came in. I'm so glad you wrote this because it, and people should check it out. If, you, if you're on Twitter, he's called at Cold War Steve is the name and you can follow it and they, they pop up and they give you a moment of repose and a moment of laughter. Yes, if I can just add to that, the format that Thames and Hudson have chosen for this book is quite small. But if you if you look at the pictures on Twitter, then you can enlarge them, of course, and you see the detail and they work so much better, really, online than they do on the printed page. Norma Clark, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Norma Clark, Alan Jenkins and Helen MacDonald. You have two weeks to subscribe to the TLS or get your hands on a copy of this week's paper so I'll be disappointed if you don't. It's full of great stuff I promise. Next week we'll be recuperating ready to attack the rest of the year with vim, vigour and mild depression. Back in a fortnight I promise. Until then from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.